Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to Front and Nationwide. This is the Athletics' dedicated Blue Jackets podcast. Aaron Portsam with you on a Tuesday morning, and we've got a special edition of this podcast. You're hearing this on the Front and Nationwide podcast. It's also going to be on Mike Russo's Straight from the Source podcast in Minneapolis. Uh, Mike, of course, covers the Minnesota Wild. I cover the Columbus Blue Jackets. And it's 20 years today since the NHL expansion draft took place in Calgary, Alberta. Doesn't seem like it's been 20 years, although some days it feels like it's been 50. Lots of good stories uh, coming out of that draft. Lots of fond memories. Uh, There's a large story posted on the website today. Tomorrow there will be a story about the 2000 entry draft, uh, the first amateur draft that the Blue Jackets took part in. You don't remember that 2000... Expansion draft for the Blue Jackets is where they landed Jeff Sanderson, Tyler Wright, Kevin Deneen, Kevin Adams, Steve Hines, Robert, all these names you remember from the early days of the franchise, Jamie Pusher, Lyle Odeline. Uh, so uh, sit back and enjoy this with us, if you would. Michael Russo from Minneapolis, uh, myself here, Aaron Portsign from Columbus, talking about those drafts. Allison will be back with us on Friday. Hope you enjoy the show. Talk to you soon. Very happy to be joined by one of my uh, favorite people, somebody that I've uh, covered this league with for 20 years, 15 while I'm in Minnesota, 20 while he's been covering the Columbus Blue Jackets, uh, my partner in crime over in Columbus with the athletic Aaron Portsline. Aaron, how are you? Mike, I'm doing great. It's amazing how long we've worked together and how little we've really cross-pollinated on stories and podcasts, so this should be fun. I know, exactly, and we are doing that in the next couple of days. Uh, Saturday, t- uh, Tuesday and Wednesday are the 20-year anniversaries, amazingly enough, 
for the expansion draft and the NHL draft. And it's funny, I mean, you covered both, obviously, for the Columbus Dispatch at the time, covering the Blue Jackets. Um, the 2000 draft is memorable from my standpoint because that was the day I was in the Calgary Saddle Dome and got to witness the sound of the crowd when when Mike Milbury traded Roberto Luongo to the Florida Panthers. And here we are 20 years later combining on a couple stories that are very important to the Blue Jackets and the Minnesota Wild. Yeah, such momentous days. I mean, you know, I think it was a little bit different for both franchises in the sense that Minnesota had had pro sports and here come the Wild back to town, NHL hockey back to the city. I think they probably knew a lot of the names that were being thrown about, a lot of the people probably in control of their team. For Columbus, for so many people in Columbus, it was all so new. Their first major league franchise, uh, first hockey uh, taste of the NHL, certainly. And everything was so new and exciting. There were people back in Columbus saying, you know, I want a jersey. Just tell me what name to put on the back (laughs) of it already. And that's what the expansion draft was for them. So it was starting to, for two years, right, they'd had the team. They had the the building was being built. All the stuff was sort of falling into place. And this was the weekend where where it came to pass that the players uh, became Blue Jackets, not just a, a team with an empty roster, but actually players to cheer for. And now that arena district in um, in Columbus is one of the finest in hockey. Nationwide Arena is just an incredible arena, and obviously that area around it. Of course, though, on the day that we're, uh, we're recording this podcast, Aaron, the NHL snubbed both. Columbus and Minnesota, very fitting for being hub cities in the NHL. Yeah, and the, the first two teams that are out, I mean, of, <laughs> among the 10 that they were considering, um, I think there's probably more news to follow, but we know the Wild are out. We know the Blue Jackets are out. The Blue Jackets were really, I, I think, hopeful of getting it. I thought they had a pretty strong chance. The one kind of thing I was kicking around in my mind, and Mike, I don't know if you were doing the same math. You're obviously in a different time zone uh, than I am here in Columbus, but if the Blue Jackets couldn't play at home. So that would that tells you that the league was planning to put the West in the East. And I'm just doing the math thinking they're not going to start games at 10 o'clock in Columbus. So that's 7 o'clock back for the for the teams back there. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, it That maybe seemed like the biggest long stretch of all. Not the facilities, not the hotel. I think they had all that stuff covered. I think the time zones thing may be the biggest challenge of all. And that's why I think most of these things are going to go out West. Yeah. Um, There's, and look, there, there are complications with every city. Um, I do think that one big reason why a lot of these um, markets are suddenly out is going to be the environment around the hub city for these players. Uh, You know, the Hilton is an incredibly nice hotel in, um, in Columbus, but it is a small hotel with uh, not a lot going on there. You're going to be going back to your hotel, staring at your hotel room walls. And, you know, really the same thing here in Minnesota, where I think that once the NHL and the NHL players association really got down to the nitty gritty on negotiations and realized how important the psyche of these players are going to be if they're stuck in these these hubs you know two weeks a month month and a half two months into this situation they have to really create a good entertainment environment for them as well have lots of things for these guys to do and that's why i think it's it opened the door for not just Vegas, but even markets like Vancouver, Chicago suddenly getting in the mix, L.A. as well. And uh, I believe that L.A. and Chicago are going to be the two other markets uh, today that are not told that they're out. I think Pittsburgh and Dallas will be out. I could be wrong. Um, but the you know the interesting thing, uh, you know, Aaron, is that if they are going to have the if they're going to press the Canadian government 
and they being the National Hockey League, that, hey, you've got to change the 14-day quarantine rule. They're not going to then, after they change the rule, say we're not coming to Canada. So clearly yeah, right, right. one market is going to be in Vancouver or Edmonton. Yeah, that, seemed, that makes sense to me. I don't think they'd be even waiting this long necessarily if they weren't hopeful of that. The question I have, though, is like, I, I know there's a lot of stuff to do in Vegas, but what can they safely do unless the league just cordons off entire, mm-hmm. I mean, an entire casino for them, an entire hotel, like the entire hotel goes to the league? That's mm-hmm. what it would be in Columbus. I just don't know how much they really physically can do. I know they want to do things. They yep. can go to the beach, but can the league secure an entire beach for them? I'm, I'm really, really curious to see how this works. And I think we agree, Mike. Don't let me put words in your mouth. I'm not quite sold that this happens yet. Yeah, and we could definitely talk about that in a, in a little bit. The one thing I will say about the hub cities and talking about Vegas in particular is I've you know, done a lot of stories, uh, uh, reporting on the stories that I've written with Joe Smith and, and before J- uh, just Joe, it was also Craig Morgan and I. And the one thing I've learned about Vegas is that there's not – uh, it's not a coincidence that the Park MGM Hotel is the only MGM resort has that has not opened. Um, and then the other thing is is that the um, Vidara, which is an extremely high-end hotel owned by MGM, is also coincidentally not open, um, nor is the hotel that's attached to Mandalay Bay, another high-end hotel. And if it was at Park MGM, they could put guard gates right there on that, that, uh, that uh, street that... Uh, borders New York, New York, and Park MGM. It leads to T-Mobile Arena, and they could make it a pretty secure environment. Um, I think that Vegas is is um, highly appetizing to the players just because a lot of these hotels that they could be at will have multiple restaurants uh, and will have multiple things uh, that they could do in this bubble. But you're right. I mean, you know, as we, as we did the talk to the other day, I mean, 11 positive tests in the league. Inevitably, there's going to be more positive tests as we get closer, Aaron, to uh, to to return to play here and the and the voting that needs to happen in terms of to have training camp and and obviously um, uh, an actual return to play tournament and the more and more positive tests come out you do have to worry wonder if the guys on the fence are going to say hey this isn't worth it right yeah my biggest question for you Russo is how many of those hotels do you get points at well that's the thing uh, if if we're media. I don't think that we're going to be in the bubble. And as far as no. I know, we could stay at the Cosmo or the uh, Marriott Chateau or, or one of those, uh, get some Marriott points. I was told the other day that John Tortorella is just, obviously <laughs> this person was joking around. He thinks this is exactly how the league should be in terms <laughs> of media on. access. This is just perfect. <laughs> Outside the bubble. Yep, exactly. Um Man, what is it like, uh, Aaron, uh, to talk to cover uh, Tortorella? Because I, I'll say, you know, in Minnesota, I've had uh, Jacques Lemaire, Todd Richards, Mike Yo, John Trichetti, Bruce Boudreaux, five, and Dean Evison, six. Uh, pretty affable coaches to to cover. I've never had somebody as intimidating as John Tortorella. Where if your uh, phone goes off in a press conference, you could be uh, sure that you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, either that or he might answer it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that uh, happened to Tom Reed, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I feel I count myself really fortunate. I had Hitch for a while here in Columbus, and uh, now Tortorella. These guys, I mean, you know, I, they went from Todd Richards to John Tortorella, which is day to night or night to day, however that would work. Um, I mean, it's it's great to, if I you know I, this could be its own show, really talking about Tortorella. But I you. You get his feelings undistilled, um, un, 
filtered. A lot of times his feelings are followed up later with a phone call. Didn't mean it to come out that way. Now I understand what you were asking. Uh, sorry I reacted like that. He's a lot more he's a lot more thoughtful and cerebral than people give him credit for. Mm-hmm. None of this stuff happens by accident. Usually when there's a flare up, two things are usually at work when he goes off on somebody. It's either he didn't like what you wrote that day or the day before, whatever. And so it doesn't really matter what question it is. He's coming at you with both shoes on, no matter what your question is. The other thing is, if he's got something that he doesn't want to talk about, or if there is an issue percolating that he just doesn't want to deal with publicly, he'll take the press conference in an entirely different direction. Right. Um, genius. And he's he's so good at it. But I like him because he's passionate and he speaks. And there's so many people now that just blather on, not to make not to rag on anybody we, we deal with, but just blather on and on without really saying anything. And their goal is to get through an entire interview without saying anything that's really that interesting. Tortorella gives you great stuff every day, whether he wants to or not. So I will I'll never complain about that no matter what the other stuff is. Aaron Portsland and I have teamed up on a couple stories, uh, one being the 20-year anniversary of the expansion draft, the other being the 20-year anniversary of the uh, Wild winning a coin flip that allowed them to pick third in the expansion draft, as a, excuse me, in the entry draft, as opposed to first in the expansion draft, and that allowed them to draft Marion Gabrick, and the Blue Jackets took the consolation prize. That is Rostislav Klesla. Um, let's talk about both those stories. Uh, first of all, the expansion draft is just absolutely fascinating because, man, Minnesota and Columbus had a little different rules than the Vegas Golden Knights, Aaron. Oh, Mike, it's unbelievable. Like, there are it's so much was so different about it then than when Vegas came in. That when you talk to Risebro and McLean, um, I think it's kind of a laugh mixed with a whimper. <laughs> um, because it just it just seems so patently unfair compared to how Vegas had it. Now, Vegas paid $500 million. Uh, Columbus and Minnesota each paid $80 million. And, but back then, teams could protect. It was, I mean, off the charts. It was thir- 14 guys or 15 guys, depending upon how you positioned it. Unrestricted free agents could be drafted. Um, I mean, there were two, two teams coming into the league at the same time. So teams could... A, play them off of each other. Uh, Doug, if we give you Jeff Sanderson, then you promise to take Dwayne Rollison, and we'll take this guy and this guy, and then we'll pull back a defenseman that we think the the Wild want. Those kind of things went on. Both of these teams traded, believe it or not, with San Jose with the agreement that they wouldn't take Evgeny Nabokov, the goaltender. This kind of stuff was going on all over the place. The other element to it that made it so difficult, whereas neither of these teams could strategize ahead of the expansion draft and say, this is what my team looks like. This is how they play. And these are the guys we're going to take. Like Vegas could zero in, could hone in on, on one guy after another. They could, they could, you know, find out how they could determine how they wish to play and then home in on those guys and take them. Columbus and Minnesota couldn't do that. They took good players. They took the players they thought were best but they couldn't really be that specific about it because the other team may very well make take this the player you had that fulfilled that sort of tendency you wanted to play with, um, and it goes on from there. I mean, it was the they were the third and the fourth teams to come into the league via expansion, 
in a three-year window. Uh, Nashville came in in 98. Atlanta came in in 99. So the, the talent base, not just was the talent base in the NHL thinned out by all of this expansion, but in anticipation of expansion, Nashville, Atlanta, and even some existing teams, they had all gone to Europe and, and swept up the top tier of European players because there was a whole new 30, 60, uh, then 90, and 120 roster-type spots in depth, organizational depth coming into the league. Um, so for, for Columbus and Minnesota, it was really slim pickings. And you look back on it, and honestly, I think they did a pretty damn good job. But just to to show the difference in, in, in numbers, Columbus and Minnesota, Mike, each had 11 players of their 24 expansion picks. 11 of them played in the NHL for them. By contrast, Vegas had 10 defensemen play for them. 19 of their 24 picks played in the NHL. And in addition to that, they got tons of first-round draft picks, second-round draft picks, all kinds of stuff uh, for taking certain players. So it really was stacked against Columbus and Minnesota from the start, and nobody bitched about it because they were happy just to be in the National Hockey League. Well, it is interesting. Uh, you know, we, we watched that YouTube video that's out there that we're going to embed in the expansion draft story. And first of all, this is the year 2000, and, they, and half the guys look like they're like in the middle of the 80s. I didn't know that it was just so weird uh, uh, back in, the, uh, in 2000. It seems so modern day, yet the only one that looked like he could be in right today was Jacques Lemaire. But the other thing um, is, is you do look at, at, uh, at like what Vegas was able to do, Aaron, and I mean, they manipulated the process with they got Carlson out of out of Columbus. They got, uh, you know, Eric, uh, Alex Tuck out of out of uh, Minnesota. So they wouldn't take Dumbo or um, or Eric Stahl. They got Shea Theodore out of Anaheim. They got both Marcia So and Riley Smith out of out of uh, out of Florida. I mean, th- these are unbelievable moves that they were able to manipulate the process with that, that really Columbus and Minnesota could not. Exactly. And I mean, it, it just. Just by the protection plans, the number that people were allowed to protect, you're talking about 110 players that were not available to Columbus. 110 existing NHL players that would have been available to Vegas. And what that creates, then it's not just those players that they could pick up, but it's the idea that teams needed to scramble to protect certain players. So Columbus was desperate. I don't recall what Minnesota did with Tuck and all of that. I'm, I know you do, but Columbus, I mean, and it's, you, you sort of raise your eyebrow at it now, but Alexander Wenberg was coming off a 60-point season. Eunice Corpusella, they thought, was a future number one goaltender. Looks like he is. And they thought Josh Anderson was a difference-making power forward, one of the rare types in this league. He certainly was that last year and in the playoffs against Tampa Bay. So they missed on... Wenberg, but they were kind of bang on on the other two players. They had to protect those three. They didn't want any of those three to go, and they were more than happy to give them Carlson. They also unloaded David Clarkson's unwieldy contract uh, to give them cat. This is the saddest part, Mike. Again, I could go on forever. They get rid of Clarkson's contract so that they can re-sign their two big stars, which, of course, they want to keep, and those two stars they want to keep are Bobrovsky and Panarin who leave anyways. But I I digress. The teams were really up against it uh, when Vegas came in. I, I'm really fascinated, and you could weigh in on this, 
Mike, how teams are going to handle. Columbus is in a much better situation, so they're not a great example, but how teams are going to handle this now uh, for Ronnie Francis and, and Seattle if they're going to bend over backward to protect a certain player if they're just going to let Seattle go. Yeah, I think it's going to be that. Uh, I just, if, I, if it were me, and the Wild are in that position again now. I mean, just an example is that Paul Fenton gave Matt Zuccarello a no-move clause, so now uh, Bill Guerin's in a position where they're probably going to have to expose a young forward that they never uh, wanted to. Um, there's just come a point where you just got to say to Seattle, look, here's your, your pick of the litter and take them, but we're not going to put ourselves in a worse position by giving you a good young player as a payback for not taking a certain player. And that's what happened with, with, with Minnesota at the time. And, and, you know, to Chuck Fletcher's defense, who was part of the 1993 expansion with the Florida Panthers, um, when Anaheim was in it as well, so it was very similar to what Columbus and Minnesota was dealing with, is that this was a first time by a lot of GMs, and they just thought from a Minnesota perspective, look, I'll protect Brodeen, I'm going to expose Dumba, but I don't want them to take Dumba, and I don't want them to take Stahl. So here, we're going to give you Eric Halla, but to do that, we're going to give you a big, young, right forward, right-handed shooting forward in Alex Tuck. And, and what happens, you know, right after the draft, they suddenly look at their depth chart and they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> we could really use Alex Tuck. Yeah, right. And so it becomes a, a real tough, tough situation from that standpoint. Yeah, I, I, I know Columbus is in a much better situation where uh, they, they don't have they're going to have a lot of no move clauses off the books. Then they had to protect Dubinsky. They had to protect Felino back then. Uh, that's not going to be an issue this time around. So they're. They're in a much better situation, at least a year out. Um, but, you know, hindsight, it's, we have the gift of that. Nobody thought William Carlson was a 43-goal scorer uh, as he was his first year in Vegas. I don't think in, his, in the last two seasons combined he's gotten uh, to 43 goals. I think he's a 15-22 to 22 goal guy. But, boy, that was, that was a hard pill to swallow when Clarkson looks like a number one center. The the uh, Golden Knights are in the in the Stanley Cup final, and Columbus is is back to saying, "God, we need a depth centerman. We could use a second or third line center." And there's William Carlson just tearing it up in in Vegas. Yeah, no, very very tough, and obviously. Um, I think a lot of teams, uh, if they look back, they do something better. Uh, let's talk about the 2000 entry draft, which is the most fascinating part of this. It's obviously intertwined with the expansion draft. Um, it's just a, it's amazing, Aaron, the way that it was done is that Bill Daly, who's uh, still to this day, uh, 20, years, uh, 20 years later, uh, the deputy commissioner of the National Hockey League, he is – uh, the man that makes everything run, uh, writes the CBA, is, is right in the nitty gritty when it comes to what's going on with the pandemic and trying to get this league back on track and, and intertwining the new CBA potentially with uh, the return to play here. Um, he is a young guy at that point. He's got to uh, flip a coin. And the winner of that coin flip gets the third pick in the NHL draft, which is already a bit a bit of contention from both Doug, Doug Reyes Brown, Doug McLean. And the loser gets the fourth pick. And the winner gets the first in the expansion draft, and the loser gets the second pick in the expansion draft. And and let's be honest, uh, everybody wanted the between the two of them, they wanted that third pick so they can get either Marion Gabrick or Danny Heatley. Yeah, nobody really wanted the first pick in the expansion draft. Like it did almost nothing. I, I would love to ask avid hockey fans who was the first player taken in the expansion draft of 2000 and I bet nobody out nobody whose last name isn't Tabarachi would get the answer to that <laughs> um yeah I mean I remember even at the time I was in New Jersey covering the cup final 
and shot over to the Hilton. You couldn't get into the coin flip, but I milled around with like a lot of people because I think the I think they may have done the draft lottery the same day. Um, so there's quite a bit going on over there. Uh, and, and Doug, of course, wanted the number three pick. Doug McLean, I should specify, wanted the number three pick because that's where the difference makers were. The expansion draft, it really didn't matter if you picked first or second. Uh, the way it was operated, it was almost um, almost made no difference whatsoever. And you could also say that that sort of be- began the Blue Jackets' string of luck. Um, Mike, you tell the story about the how that pick was determined and sort of the hilarity around it. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Is that uh, Doug Risebrow? And we'll 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 also uh, we should give little uh, the fans afterwards a little inkling on how we reported on this these stories together that are going to run Tuesday and Wednesday. And again, uh, to read those stories, please uh, list, uh, subscribe to the Athletic at theAthletic.com. There's uh, free trials going on right now as well, so you can uh, do that. But Bill Daly, uh, nervous Bill Daly, as Doug Risebrow said, uh, flips the coin onto a table. The head, by the way, which I was shocked by. The silver NHL shield, which didn't even exist back then for four or five years. Remember, it was still the orange shield and the and the silver shield was going to come into play um, in, I think, 2005 after the lockout, Aaron. But yet they had this uh, what was going to eventually be four years down the road, the new shield. But it's on a tablecloth and Bill Daly throws the coin on the cloth. And if, if this coin landed on the wild logo. It would be the Wild getting the entry draft third overall pick. If it lands on the Blue Jackets, it's going to be the Blue Jackets getting it. The thing hops off the table and lands at the feet of Doug Risebrow. And Risebrow's all ecstatic, thinking, hey, it's on the Wild logo. Well, Bill Daly goes and reaches and lunges for this coin, says, no, that doesn't count because it's got to land on the table. And Bill, Doug Risebrow's thinking, well, what's the chances we're going to win this a second time? And Bill Daly flips the coin. And sure enough, it lands on the Wild logo and the Wild get the third overall pick. Yeah. And of course, from the Columbus perspective, they lost the freaking coin flip twice. (laughs) I mean, right, right out of the hopper. That's just, and that's kind of, that's kind of been their entry draft luck from the start. I mean, that in its way, that coin flip really is part of a lottery. If you think about it. Yeah. And remember the uh, 2013 playoffs on how they got eliminated from there. Yeah. How they didn't make it. (laughs) Thanks to the wild. Yes, yeah, exactly. In overtime, tiebreaker. Yeah. Yep. Um, the uh, yeah, that one. We're we're in Denver. It's the last game of the night. The Wild have to win that game, or Columbus is going to make the playoffs because they tied in points. And not only did the Wild win the game, but Chuck Kobasu, who uh, was traded to the Columbus to the Colorado Avalanche, uh, scores a goal that I'm telling you should have been a goal, but the league looked at it, reviewed it, and decided he kicked it in. Goal comes off, and the Wild go on to win the game, and Blue Jackets um, miss the playoffs. I mean, if you're banking on Chuck Obese, you got you, you, that's maybe your first <laughs> problem. Um, year after year, they, as you remember, they they had some lousy years. Of course, they would they never moved up in the draft lottery ever, not once. And and so many years they would figure they would be just they would have these strong finishes to to finish just. Just above awful, and not get the difference ma- difference making player, and then end up eighth, ninth, eleventh, twelfth, and so the entry draft has never been their friend. That's just sort of the first example of it. They lost a coin flip twice to the Minnesota Wild, and so the Wild get Marion Gabrick, 
Uh, the Blue Jackets, so DiPietro's off the board. Danny Heatley's off the board. Gabrick now is off the board to Minnesota. And so the Blue Jackets take, they were excited at the time, Rostislav Klesla. Uh, and, you know, I think if you had to do it over again, that's not an awful pick. It wasn't a very good draft. Scott Hartnell's there. There are other players you would consider uh, in that mix. But, I mean, that's not the draft to be out of the top three, really. Right? Yeah. No. Not at all. I mean, you look at that 2000 draft, as as Doug McLean says in our story, it was, quote, terrible. Um, 4,700 games combined between the top six picks, but it goes significantly down from there. There are some one-offs like Brooks Orpik, Justin Williams, Ron Hainsey that have played more 1,000 games, Nick Schultz and the rest of the draft. Henrik Lundqvist was obviously drafted way late, but man, oh, man, uh, it just goes downhill from there. And and really, if you look at it, after Klesla, it goes Rafi Torres and then Scott Hartnell. Um, there wasn't a lot there. And um, it really is interesting when you talk to Doug Reisbrow, Reisbrow says that Klesa was in the mix if the Wild had lost the coin toss for fourth. But when I talked to Tommy Thompson for the story, he says to this day, it's easy to say, obviously, in hindsight, uh, but I do believe uh, uh, Tommy Thompson because he gives the reason why they didn't like Klesa. Uh, he says the Wild would have taken Scott Hartnell at fourth overall. And that changes both the landscape of both franchises. Is All of a sudden, a true stud... Uh, goes to uh, Columbus at third overall, and the Wild get a grinder character guy at fourth overall, but not necessarily somebody that's going to go and lead you to uh, you know a lot of victories, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of goals scored, things like that. Yeah, Rusty was very much a defensive defenseman, solid player, decent puck mover, not a number four overall pick in most years drafts. Had terrible injuries, and that slowed him down considerably. Um, I mean, and of course the Blue Jackets did have Gabrick in his later years under Todd Richards in Columbus. Uh, he was here over parts of two seasons, but not really the equivalent of even one. They, they acquired him shortly after Yarmo Kakalainen took over. Uh, he felt they needed a game changer. Gabrick came here, finished 12-13 with Columbus. Again, they missed the playoffs. Uh, he was traded the next year and, and, they, you know, I, he had a great run with the Kings in the playoffs. That was kind of his swan song in the NHL, Gabrick. Um, just sort of ironic. And it sort of came to Columbus at the same stage in his career that Fedorov did, where these are great players and you see inklings of it here and there. But people in Columbus really didn't get to see either of these guys uh, at the peak of their of their time. And, uh, you know, it is uh, quite unreal. Like, you you, you do look, uh, he plays 34 games total for the Columbus Blue Jackets, Marion Gabrick. Uh, injury riddled that second season. Very familiar uh, to Wild fans, I know. Yep. And then traded uh, for a couple draft picks. And Matt Fratton to the LA Kings scores 14 <laughs> goals in a playoff right. run. And uh, and the Kings go and win a Stanley Cup. And Gabrick uh, now has a Stanley Cup ring because of that. And and everything intertwined between Minnesota and Columbus, it's its really, uh, frankly, unreal. Um, you look at the rest of that draft, uh, the Wild, they did get a really quality pick in that second round in Nick Schultz, uh, but not too much uh, really the rest of the way for Columbus in that draft, right? Well, no. Uh, in keeping with the uh, traditions, if you will, they um, that was a rough draft for them. They had a few others. Really, the first one that really took off for them draft-wise was 2002 when they got Rick Nash. Mm-hmm. Um, and moved up incredibly from three to one without really giving up anything. But 
of, of I mean, of all the players they took in 2000, I want to say they took 10 players, maybe nine players. I think only two of them played even even at all in the NHL, maybe three. But Terry Newman was a the guy they took in the fourth <laughs> or the fifth round, and he ended up being a wild. I think he may have played yep. more games for the wild than Columbus. Yeah, um, he was a shootout specialist, if I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And an interesting little cap. But, I mean, for you think about it, for all of the work that went into that first year's entry draft where they're looking at those guys two years out um, to get, again, like you said, it wasn't a very good draft, but here's the list here. So Klesla played, Pateri Newman played, and other than that, the only guy that played for them was a ninth-round pick, Andre Neteros, who played 28 games. And most of those weren't worth worth Columbus either, I don't think. Maybe they were. But not a not a very productive start. That That's an awful, awful week. It, I had a blast in Calgary that year, by the way. <laughs> um, it was so fun to see everything come into shape. But really not a great weekend uh, for the franchise. Not the springboard you're looking for into your NHL existence, for sure. Not only can you read these two awesome stories that uh, Aaron and I have teamed up on here on Tuesday and Wednesday to, to uh, commemorate the 20-year anniversaries of the uh, Minnesota Wild and Columbus Blue Jackets en- expansion draft and first entry drafts, uh, but stories galore by both of us, but also podcasts all over. Uh, you could always listen to Aaron Portsline and Allison Lucan uh, uh, on their podcast. What's that called, Aaron? Front and Nationwide. Front and nationwide. Um, did I tell you about the time that I was walking to Nationwide Arena from like the Renaissance and I saw a guy get out of his car and uh, pee on the Nationwide sign at the Nationwide headquarters? Excellent. Uh, yeah. Daylight or was this in the evening time? Oh, this was uh, definitely daylight. It was shocking. Ooh. Did um, you record? Yeah. Was remember these I, I was teams? with. Ju- <laughs> I was with John Shipley from the Pioneer Press, and we've gotten a lot of mileage talking about that all the time. We just wanted to know what Bill Nationwide might have uh, uh, turned down, what clan that caused him to drive to Nationwide, get out of his car, and piss on the uh, the uh, logo. I kind of admire it, I have to say. Broad daylight. You know, yep. other uh, good podcasts this week, by the way, Rick Tockett, the coach of the Arizona Coyotes on with Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun and two man advantage. And they'll talk about um, as well. The NHL's return to play plan hub cities, the hockey fall of fame, 2020 inductees and the NHL draft lottery. Uh, so definitely listen to those. Um, Aaron, as I mentioned, you've covered the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets for 20 years. I've covered the Minnesota Wild for 15 years. Sometimes when you cover guys for as long as we have, uh, you, 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 you tick them off at times. You know, that's hmm. part of, I think, being a good beat writer. And it is interesting how we reported on the, these yes. stories. Um, just to give people a little heads up, uh, all the Doug McLean quotes in the two stories that you're going to see the last couple days were uh, gotten by me. All the Doug Risebrow quotes uh, were gotten by Aaron Portsline, and a lot of the reason is because uh, Risebrow is not a big fan of mine anymore, and McLean's not a big fan of you. Yeah, that's fair to say. In fact, this this wasn't the this had nothing to. This story has nothing to do with with where the relationship is now. But cover, you know, covering Doug uh, Russo because you mm-hmm. had him down in Florida. In Florida, he, yep. Yeah, he is a character, and I actually really like the guy. He is he is dynamic. He is magnetic. He is maybe the best salesman I've ever been around uh, in terms of convincing you something is true, even if you came into the conversation knowing it wasn't. Anyways, expansion <laughs> draft. Um, they take Dwayne Rollison. And the Blue Jackets at this point already had Mark Denis. They had traded for him with Colorado. And you, 
we at that point we did not know all of the inner workings of the expansion draft so you didn't know rather someone was taken you didn't know whether someone was taken on on face value if that was an actual pick or if this was uh, a favor you took this player so that the team wouldn't lose another guy and they gave you this or that so i asked him dwayne rollison is this dwayne rollison going to be perhaps your one two combination with martini in some order and doug just Doug loves to show people up in front of other people. Just goes on a rant to me about Dwayne Rollison. Learn the effing game. Will you learn this game? Dwayne Rollison can't play in the National Hockey League. Over and over again. And I think that got back to Rollison. Because Rollison always kicked the Blue Jackets' ass. Uh, If you look at his numbers against the Blue Jackets, they're rather impressive. Safe percentage of goals against. Um... And, of course, Dwayne Rollison, oddly enough, you talked about all the the connections between these two franchises. The Blue Jackets take him in the expansion draft. They have no intention to sign him because everybody knows, everybody knew then anyways, he can't play in the National Hockey League. The Wilds sign him, and he's he has a hell of a career, uh, especially late in his career with the Wild. Um, so, yeah, Doug and I had some – he really – you think he doesn't like me. He really doesn't like my former colleague Michael Arace. Um, but I, I still, most of the time, we could get past any of this stuff. And I think if we worked together regularly, still, we would. Um, but, yeah, it's not uh, a productive situation if I make that phone call today. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, conversely, I mean, Doug and I are very, very tight. Um, you know, I covered him in Florida probably because I didn't ever had to cover him as a GM and he took things maybe as personally. I've never had that type of relationship with him. But I remember early in my time in uh, Florida, there were times where he'd get ticked off at the end. He'd, he'd uh, you know, he'd let you know and things like that. But I, I do find him, uh, you know, one of my one of my uh, favorite people to deal with and things like that. Uh, you know, Risebrough, similarly, I have a lot of respect for. I liked him a lot. I think he felt like, um, you know, at the end that I was after him a bit, that I was a little too critical. Um, You know, the one thing about Doug, and it's interesting because I was listening, uh, Craig Custance just did an excellent podcast with uh, Chris Snow, the assistant general manager of the Calgary Flames, who has uh, Lou Gehrig's disease right now. And uh, is somebody that he's a former sports writer for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Then he goes to the Boston Globe, covers the Red Sox. And then he comes back to work for the Minnesota Wild as director of hockey operations because Doug, Doug Risebrough hired him, was a mentor to him, real, really taught him uh, the game, uh, took him under his wing and um, and everything like that. And, you know, it is interesting listening to that podcast because I recognize a lot of the things that Chris Snow felt about Doug Risebrough, I, I recognize too. And I think it made me uncomfortable at the very beginning of my time covering uh, the Wild uh, where I felt like Doug was trying to become, you know, really tight with me, really learn who I was, you know, would want to go on walks. So we went to a picnic once at this park here in St. Paul. We went to a, uh, you know, I I, I told this story before where, you know, I drove with him to Banff one time to see his his home there and actually stayed there. And, um, you know, I just felt like he was trying to, you know, sort of, um, you know, maybe manipulate the the relationship a bit from a standpoint that, all right, now, uh, you know, he's going to be in my pocket. I'll be able to, you know, really control what he writes and things like that. And, and being a veteran sports writer and a little worried about blurring those lines at that point, I, I you know, probably maybe was a little too harder. And um, for some bizarre reason, I've covered so many guys in the National Hockey League, uh, coaches, players, um, managers, 
Um, after they are let go or traded by an organization that I cover, I usually stay in, in good contact with them and things like that. But yet Doug is somebody that, uh, you know, is not a big fan of mine. I've only honestly probably talked to him uh, twice since he's left uh, the Minnesota Wild, even though he's in the press box a lot scouting games. Uh, once was a Starbucks at the Buffalo draft. I just happened to awkwardly run into him. And another time was um, was after Derek Bugard died. Um, but that is it. And um, so it, it is. I mean, it's one of those things I do have regrets about because the one thing that I will say that Chris Snow says that is absolutely accurate, he's an incredible hockey guy. He's an awesome guy to just shoot the breeze with about hockey and other things. And he's deep down a very, very good person. And yet for some bizarre reason, um, you know, I don't know if we'll ever be able to patch things up. But I knew right when we were going to team up on these stories, I said to you, Porty, uh, how about we do this? You call Doug, your Doug, I'll call or I'll call your Doug, you call yes. my Doug, and then we'll write Deal. the story together. Yeah, yeah otherwise it's not a story. Yeah, exactly. Right. And this, and this both guys, and I will say both guys in the story, I mean, their voices are, I mean, you know, typical Doug McLean, a lot of sarcastic, funny things. Oh, yes. uh, Riseborough had great anecdotes. He's such an anecdotal guy. Um, and uh, and it, I think both stories turned out really well, and hopefully uh, Wild fans and Blue Jackets fans enjoy these trips down memory lane that will appear in Tuesday and Wednesday's edition of The Athletic. Uh, Aaron, um, tell, tell me about uh, how you got into this business, because uh, you and I are lifers, man. I grew up, I, I started as a sports writer at age 15, 16 in South Florida, working for a major daily, the Sun Sentinel, and I never left. Yeah, it's interesting. I certainly didn't start with a major daily. I started a newspaper, though. About that time, I think I was 16 years old in Mount Vernon, Ohio, about an hour northeast of, of uh, Columbus, and I started writing uh, high school game stories, not the high school I went to, but the county yep. schools, and summer league baseball and softball scores and all that sort of stuff. And even at that level of experience, it got into my blood, and it I knew it was something I, I couldn't shake. And when I was 18 and about to graduate from high school, I started bugging the sports editor of the Columbus Dispatch, who I had been reading for years. Um, every every chance I got, but certainly every Sunday, George Strode was his name, and I wrote him so many letters. Um, it's like the oldest adage in the book, but I think he called and and offered me a part timer's job just to just to end this the endless string of letters that were arriving at his desk. Like, leave me the freak alone. Just get in here and and uh, and start working as a part-timer. So I moved to Columbus to attend Ohio State, started working there as a part-timer. Uh, took every opportunity that I could get. Hey, they're racing boats on the Soda River. Okay, I'll follow you 12 inches. Um, <laughs> high school tennis, anything you could anything you could put in front of me, I would, I would write any opportunity I got. Um, and then quickly started covering the, the Columbus Clippers, the triple a team of the, of the New York Yankees. I thought I was going to be a baseball guy. Russo, um, mm-hmm. became buddies with, with, um, Buster Olney who helped me along big time in the mid to late nineties, covering the Clippers. He was covering the Yankees at the time for the New York times and had some great players coming through town. If you look at those, those early 2000 Yankees teams, all those guys came through Columbus. And then in 98, they hired Michael A. Race uh, from Hartford to cover the Blue Jackets. And I came off baseball and joined him on hockey as a backup guy in 2000. And then he became a columnist in 0405, and I took over the beat uh, full time. But there were times, even in those early years, where A. Race and, and McLean weren't talking. <laughs> so I would be sent in uh, to <laughs> clarify something or get a tidbit. 
And, you know, Doug was smart. You'd start in a line of questioning and say, I already talked to A-Race about this. Say, yeah, but you didn't answer this or this or this. Oh, you're asking for him, aren't you? Well, maybe. And then he'd he'd give it to you and and you'd move on. But we had, I I still, as strange as it sounds, this team has been uh, pretty damn good now, the Blue Jackets, for the last five, six, seven years. Um, Really competitive team. The team that everybody's waited for. But those early years were still, I had so much fun. Uh, cover especially the first couple years with those guys that they picked up in the expansion draft that is just a different feel a dressing room like that has a different feel to it than it does when the team is expected to be good and they've got all these first round draft picks and talent and high expectations it's a different feel but it's been a blast these 20 years I know you feel the same I feel like in many ways Mike it feels like it's been 50 years since we've been covering the lead together and then some days it feels like it's been 10 uh, yeah, it's pretty wild that it's been been twenty for me and more than that for you. Yeah, it's it is it's it is crazy, and that's how you know your your beginning in this business is, uh, really emulates mine. Uh, you know, I, I had to cover a little bit of everything, uh, whether it's uh, you know water skiing in a canal at a park in Lake Worth, Florida, to covering zero zero high school ho- uh, soccer games to um, covering the West Palm Beach Blaze of the Sunshine Hockey League. Um, you know, I just I just worked my way up, and I. I, you know, to make up a word, grinded and grinded. And, um, and, you know, I mean, it, it, it is, it's a, t- it, that's how you have to do it sometimes to get your foot in the door. And I remember, I mean, I was working at the Boca News and, um, I remember I, at college at the University of Florida, I was working for the Williston Sun Swanee Valley News, covering high school football games at Williston, roaming the sidelines and in, uh, you know, rainstorms and things like that. And that's how you learn this business. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Aaron, I, I feel for younger people today because it's so hard to get into this business. And now, with um, you know, it was already hard enough, but now we've got a uh, pandemic that is really shrinking our business even further. And could you imagine being a young journalism student trying to become a uh, sports writer now? It's it's changed so much and in so many ways. Like Mike, you remember this when when we first started out, there were so few jobs. Period. Right, like there were just the Columbus Dispatch would have. I think the sports staff was between fifty and sixty people. When I started, I hate I hate to guess what it, what it is now, but those people just didn't move. They just didn't leave those jobs because they were really good jobs. I went to a really small newspaper in London, Ohio, Monday through Friday operation, which had a circulation of like two thousand and no AP wire photo machine, which means every picture <laughs> in the paper was locally produced. You can't do that anymore because those papers don't exist largely anymore. And the pa- the newspapers aren't hiring anymore. The staffs are so slow and so low. But the opportunities there now to write are so different. And they're at times more self-manufactured. It's almost like the printing press has been reinvented now because of the Internet. And people can do it on their own now. Uh, you can get your voice out there. It's not easy, but you can. And before, you couldn't write for a mass publication if someone else didn't give you a job. Now you can write. Now you can push yourself out there. Now you can have experience writing uh, that was really hard to get. I talk to older PR people about this all the time, how it took years, Mike, to get into a professional press box setting. And when you finally got there, you shut the hell up for the first couple of years and you watched and you looked and you listened. And, you know, there's some people who end up in the press box where you're like, whoa, 
that stuff would not have gone on by a first year guy back in the day. Kids walking across the logo in the dressing room, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. But it's all, it's just different. It's all different. It's not bad. It's not good. I think actually some of it's really good. Um, but the world has changed so, so dramatically. Well, I do remember that when we when we started out, not to do the old, you know, when I was young, but when we started out, I mean, you did. You had to work your way up. You had to cover preps forever. You had to, had to deal with keeping your own stats and dealing filing on pay phones with acoustic couplers on a trash 80 and, you know, things like that. And now it does seem like young sports writers are just catapulted right into a professional locker room and, and they don't really get that on-the-job experience. I remember when I was covering preps for the Sun Sentinel, I would freelance for Associated Press uh, at Marlin games or Miami Heat games or Panther or Dolphin games. And I would just sit there and watch the sports writers work, watch Steve Wine, who's been a, uh, the AP writer in Miami forever, um, and, and just watch how questions are asked to professionals and things like that. And it's a great learning experience, and you're doing it for $25 a story just to run quotes. Yeah. Yeah, I remember my first day at the Columbus Dispatch, I had a sl- short sleeve dress shirt on and a tie. And I sat down at the desk, and the sports editor came over and physically took the tie off of me. We don't wear these here. <laughs> and I'm there for about five minutes, and the elevator bings, and the door opens up, and there's Bob Baptist. You would have thought Elena Portskova walked off the elevator. <laughs> I was absolutely gobsmacked. This guy I've been reading for years and years and years is there. And the, those, those were your heroes. The first time you covered a national event, and and started chatting with these guys that you'd been reading for years what a thrill it's it's just it it has changed so much now um again i think it's there it's for the good and and not so good i don't think it's as gloomy as some people do but it's been a wild ride and i feel like we came in at a kind of an exciting time because we got i think we tasted sort of the tail end of the glory years of sports writing and now we're sort of still we still got a ways to go mikey boy yeah, no uh, doubt, no doubt. And, and hopefully, and frankly, hopefully young young sports writers look up to us the way that we did to, you know, the Dave Fays and the Jim Kellys and the Frank Browns and the Jim Mathesons yes. and DeHatchik and, you know, uh, Gallagher and all those guys. I mean, Strachan, you know, all those. You know, remember those early years covering the NHL Characters. when you'd watch uh, oh. Strachan and Gallagher, just Jim Kelly just go after Bettman at a State of the Union uh, oh, uh, yes. NHL event? Oh, it was just As an incredible. American-born lawyer, I remember the <laughs> yeah. preface on every question was fantastic. Yep, exactly. Yep, no doubt. During our, the 20-year anniversaries, whenever that will wind up being, the 20-year seasons for the Minnesota Wild and Columbus Blue Jackets, it looks like it's going to happen in just 2021. Um, you and I are probably going to write a, couple, a bunch of stories in concert with each other. I know one of the things that we both want to do is maybe a top 50 team for each franchise, but also do it collaboratively with the fans. You know, have it some sort of uh, poll where fans from both the Blue Jackets and the Minnesota Wild can vote on their all Minnesota Wild, all Columbus Blue Jackets team. Um, if you were going to really, not to put you on the spot here, um, but if you were going to say who would be on that either Mount Rushmore or just the all Columbus Blue Jackets team, uh, who would you? Uh, who are some of the names that just jump out at you? Yeah, I mean, the one that hits you right upside the head is, of course, in Columbus is Rick Nash um, Mm -hmm. from the early days of the franchise. A guy we both covered, Ray Whitney, was a great player for them. The best. Uh, A great player. Really good dude off the ice, too. Smart. Great quote. Um, And, and, you know, I mean, recently they've had some of their best players. Sergei Bobrovsky, how can you not mention him? Two Vezina trophies. Uh, Artemi Panarin was here 
uh, but a brief time, but was phenomenal. The two highest scoring seasons in franchise history. I look at their back end now and, and you know, I, I keep trying to tell people, appreciate these days with Wierenski and Jones. Um, they may be here a very, very long time, and it still won't be long enough to watch those two play hockey together. Um, Sarah, we had an opportunity to cover Sergei freaking Fedorov. And you look at a guy like that and realize the history, the experience, and the way that that guy carried himself. Uh, some of the characters that have come through here. I can't wait to write. You were talking about some of the some of the stories we'll be detailing with in the or dealing with in the coming year. Jody Shelley is a player in Columbus, Ohio, who is beloved, and his arrival in the NHL is a great story. I won't ruin it here. Tyler Wright was a character. I think of these people that the that the fans loved that became their guy. Not you know, hockey teams have there's the best player, and then there's the guy everybody loves. Um, Jared Bowl was that. Boone Jenner is that in Columbus. Is there a classier guy in the league? You've got his brother, than Nick Felino. Yeah, I mean that that guy is beloved by even players who at times can't stand him. So I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. Antoine Vermette, great guy. Uh, Lyle Odeline was a, a character. Kevin Deneen, it was a was a uh, I you know helped me immensely in the early years. Basically said, kid, this is an NHL dressing room. You're not dealing with baseball players anymore. Sit down. <laughs> let's have a conversation. Yep. It was different. Um, all those guys, Espen Knutson, David Verborny, I could go on. Uh, it's been a thrill, Mike. I don't know if that comes through in my voice, but it's yeah, been a yeah, no, and, and I think that's the mark of a good beat writer too. Is that that the respect that we have for the players that we cover? Um, you know, you still got to tell it like it is and things like that, but you hope that there's some sort of mutual respect, and that's the the fun part of covering this league is that you just get the opportunity, especially in markets like Minnesota and Columbus, to develop relationships with these players where you get to tell their stories, not just them as a player. We all know uh, what type of player by watching Rick Nash he is, but you're able to tell the stories of exactly who Rick Nash is as a person that you really can't do in other sports or other markets uh, than these two. But uh, similarly in Minnesota, I mean, you know, we've had some great ones, uh, you know, from Miko Koivu up the middle to um, Eric Stahl, um, you know, uh, the wingers, guys like Gabrick, uh, Parisi, um, Andrew Burnett, Nino Niederreiter, um, you know, just really, really quality players um, on defense. Ryan Suter, Jared Spurgeon, uh, Jonas Brodin, one of the most underrated players still in the league. Uh, back in the day, Nick Schultz and Willie Mitchell. You mentioned good guys. Nick Schultz is as good a guy as there is. And that's the cool thing. If I had like an all like, you know, Minnesota, like, you know, best guy award, um, I could put about 50 players on that. You know, the Charlie Coyles and Nate Prossers, the Curtis Fosters, the Spurgeons, the the Ryan Carters and Matt Collins and Todd Whites and, and those type of guys. Eric Stahl, Nicholas Backstrom, Devin Dubnik, Alex Daylock. I mean, it's just... You know, we, we've gotten lucky. Uh, Jason Pominville. I mean, just tons and tons of great guys here. I didn't mention, by the way, as, as awesome players, too. Uh, Brent Burns was here at the beginning. Uh, it's one of the trades that I'm sure deep down uh, Chuck Fletcher wonders if he should have made. But I think it was all to set the table for the Parisi Suter signings. Interesting. Yeah, and, and there's a new wave always, right? Like, I think players are a little bit different now than when we started. There's a guy in the Columbus dressing room right now, Russo. I'm afraid to even tell you about him because you'll 
you'll be coming over here on road trips and, and snapping up all the good stuff. Elvis <laughs> Merzlikens, yeah, is yeah. just unbelievable. And I keep every time I see Chirac, I say, "Don't spoil him, Todd. Don't spoil him." Because the PR <laughs> and Chirac, like by the way, yeah, Chirac like is the uh, Blue Jackets uh, Sickman. Yeah, uh, yeah, Aaron Sickman, right. the PR guy. Um, yeah. What do you think sports writing is going to be like after this pandemic? Uh, just real quick. Oh. Uh, I mean, do you you, you mentioned uh, coming in t- on road trips into the Columbus locker room? When do you think the next time we're actually going to get to talk to a player face to face? I mean, it feels like 2022, doesn't it? God, <laughs> I hate to say that. I'm just picturing Torts on a Zoom acting like the mute. He can't figure out the mute button and it won't work. So he just puts the <laughs> lid down and walks away. I yeah. can just see it. Doesn't work. Done. I'm out. You know, we've got an entire podcast. We haven't even talked about Jeff Rimmer. Like, one of my favorite things would be to, uh, like, I want to next season, just every time that we see that a a uh, a John Tortorella Zoom is going to start, is just dial Jeff Rimmer's phone and see if he turned the ringer off. Right. Right. Uh, I have a hilarious story. I, Rimmer's not going to listen to this, so I can share it. Oh, no, no chance he's going to listen, right? There's no chance he's going to listen to it. it certainly Actually, he's going to listen to it, but he's going to be so offended we got 55 minutes in without asking, uh, mentioning him for the first time. I'll ask for his money back. Um, he wraps up a road game, uh, throws it back to the studio so they can pack up and hop on the, the media bus to get out of there by saying, I don't even know where the hell they were, but then the Blue Jackets lose to Calgary 4-2. to two. And Signs off, and the, a guy in the booth says, Hey, Jeff, uh, just for future reference, it was 3-1 to one or whatever it was. Had the score wrong. And so Rimmer is fuming mad, fuming mad, like pissed <laughs> off at the world, stomps all the way to the media bus. Uh, the TV producer is on the media bus waiting for him, and everybody's being quiet because that's how you're supposed to act when the team loses. Rimmer gets on, still cussing and muttering under his breath, bad mood, nobody talked to me. Three minutes later, the radio guy comes on, and the TV producer says, Hey, Bob, what was the score on radio? <laughs> The whole that pissed oh, off Rimmer for two weeks. One of my favorite uh, Jeff Rimmer things because I watch a lot of Blue Jackets games because Jeff's one of my best friends. So I do. I absolutely enjoy uh, watching Blue Jackets games because I, because of him and so I can make fun of him. After I always joke that Jody Jody Shelley's uh, the first uh, color analyst that he doesn't run out of a booth forever only because he gets to be call games from between the bench. Um, but one of my favorite things was like the early years of the Blue Jackets and I'm watching this game at my old condo. And, you know, there's nobody at Nationwide Arena. And Nash scores a goal, and he screams on the television, and they stand as one. And I look around the arena. They show, they pan the crowd, and there's like five yeah. people standing up because uh, everybody had just left or something. So I it was like the box that. center. Yeah. I joked with yeah. – uh, so I was on a um, – a uh, little uh, group text today with uh, Todd Chirac and Jeff Rimmer, and I told him that I was going to definitely talk about how uh, Jeff's going to put in some uh, campaigning for some per diem that he's lost here by this pandemic. But I did say that if he gets to call games during the return here, during the qualifying round, that when Columbus is considered the road team, even if he's in Fox Sports Ohio's studios, you right. know that, that he's going to turn in uh, uh, receipts for uh, per diem for the road. So. Oh, that's brutal yeah. and true. Hey, so uh, this was a lot of fun. We're going to be uh, throughout the 20 year anniversary of both these franchises. Aaron Portsline and I will be uh, writing a lot of stories uh, 
together. Um, you know, there are a lot of great stories. Even just talking to Doug McLean the last uh, couple days, I heard some great ones about the original uh, logo and what that was going to be on. I heard uh, stories about the uh, Blue Jackets old mascot. Um, just really good stories. I can't wait to read from Aaron Portsline. And same thing here in Minnesota. There's just so many things that we're going to get to write. Um, but to do so, you got to subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash straight from the source. That will get you in for 40% off. Um, Aaron, it's going to be fun. This uh, Whenever the 20 20- anniversary actually uh, officially starts but at least people could start off by reading these 20-year anniversary stories on the expansion draft and entry draft yeah and that's one of the reasons one of the many reasons you hope things get back somehow to normal so that there can be a next season like there should be because these two teams and their fan bases most of all uh, deserve to enjoy it no doubt. And we'll see how Minnesota and Columbus does as long as the NHL does return this summer. Uh, Columbus Blue Jackets were absolutely devastated by injuries this year. They're going to have uh, all those guys back. Uh, Minnesota as well uh, going to, you know, they're a, thir- they're a 30-something team that's going to have a lot of rest going into that qualifying round against the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, Aaron Portsline, our 20, has covered the Columbus Blue Jackets for 20 years. He and I, uh, I was in Europe when he the Athletic was recruiting him to come to the uh, Athletic. I remember talking to him from, I think it was Scotland um, and him telling me he was going to come to this thing called the athletic and I'm like oh do it do it do it and then he did it and I was like what is he nuts and then a month later I joined the athletic so uh, thanks a lot Aaron oh it's been a pleasure glad we could do this if you're listening to this podcast you probably have a subscription to the athletic but if you don't here's an offer I'm not sure you can refuse theathletic.com forward slash front and nationwide that's theathletic.com slash front A N D nationwide. Dial that up, you get 40% off of an annual subscription, and I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. You get access to every team, every league, national writers on, on this side of the globe and across the globe. Uh, it's a great deal. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Friday with Allison Lucan. And we will talk to you then.